Part Eight of Orinoco. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. Orinoco, or the Royal Slave, by Aphra Ben. Part Eight. About this time we were in many mortal fears about some disputes the English had with the Indians, so that we could scarce trust ourselves, without great numbers, to go to any Indian towns or place where they abode, for fear they should fall upon us, as they did immediately after my coming away, and the place being in the possession of the Dutch, they used them not so civilly as the English, so that they cut in pieces all they could take getting into houses, and hanging up the mother and all her children about her, and cut a footman, I left behind me all in joints, and nailed him to trees. This feud began while I was there, so that I lost half the satisfaction I proposed in not seeing and visiting the Indian towns. But one day, bemoaning of our misfortunes upon this account, Caesar told us we need not fear, for if we had a mind to go, he would undertake to be our guard. Some would, but most would not venture. About eighteen of us resolved, and took barge, and after eight days arrived near an Indian town. But approaching it, the hearts of some of our company failed, and they would not venture on shore. So we polled, who would and who would not. For my part, I said, if Caesar would, I would go. He resolved. So did my brother and my woman, a maid of good courage. Now none of us speaking the language of the people, and imagining we should have a half-diversion in gazing only, and not knowing what they said, we took a fisherman that lived at the mouth of the river, who had been a long inhabitant there, and obliged him to go with us. But because he was known to the Indians, as trading among em, and being, by long living there, become a perfect Indian in colour, we, who had a mind to surprise em, by making them see something they never had seen, that is, white people, resolved only myself, my brother, and woman should go. So Caesar, the fisherman, and the rest, hiding behind some thick reeds and flowers that grew in the banks, let us pass on towards the town, which was on the bank of the river all along. A little distant from the houses, or huts, we saw some dancing, others busied in fetching and carrying of water from the river. They had no sooner spied us, but they set up a loud cry, that frighted us at first, we thought it had been for those that should kill us, but it seems it was of wonder and amazement. They were all naked, and we were dressed, as so as is most commode for the hot countries, very glittering and rich, so that we appeared extremely fine. My own hair was cut short, and I had a taffety cap, with black feathers on my head. My brother was in a stuff suit, with silver loops and buttons, and abundance of green ribbon. This was all infinitely surprising to them, and because we saw them stand still till we approached them, we took heart and advanced, came up to them, and offered them our hands, which they took, and looked on us round about, calling still for more company, who came swarming out, all wondering, and crying out, to peem, taking their hair up in their hands, and spreading it wide to those they called out to, as if they would say, as indeed it signified, numberless wonders or not to be recounted, no more than to number the hair of their heads. By degrees they grew more bold, and from gazing upon us round, they touched us, laying their hands upon all the features of our faces, feeling our breasts and arms, taking up one petticoat, then wondering to see another, admiring our shoes and stockings, but more our garters, which we gave them, and they tied about their legs, 
being laced with silver lace at the ends, for they much esteem any shining things. In fine, we suffered them to survey us as they pleased, and we thought they would never have done admiring us. When Caesar and the rest saw we were received with such wonder, they came up to us, and finding the Indian trader whom they knew, for tis by these fishermen, called Indian traders, we hold a commerce with them, for they love not to go far from home, and we never go to them. When they saw him, therefore, they set up a new joy, and cried in their language, Oh, here's our Tagaumi, and we shall now know whether these things can speak. So, advancing to him, some of them gave him their hands, and cried, Amora Tagami, which is as much as, How do you do? or Welcome, friend! And all with one din began to gabble to him, and asked if we had sense and wit, if we could talk of affairs of life and war as they could do, if we could hunt, swim, and do a thousand things they use. He answered them we could. Then they invited us into their houses, and dressed venison and buffalo for us, and going out, gathered a leaf of a tree called a serumbo leaf, of six yards long, and spread it on the ground for a tablecloth, and cutting another in pieces, instead of plates, set us on a little low Indian stools, which they cut out of one entire piece of wood, and paint in a sort of Japan-work. They serve every one their mess on these pieces of leaves, and it was very good but too highly seasoned with pepper. When we had eat, my brother and I took out our flutes, and played to him, which gave him new wonder, and I soon perceived, by an admiration that is natural to these people, and by the extreme ignorance and simplicity of them, it were not difficult to establish any unknown or extravagant religion among them, and to impose any notions or fictions upon them. For seeing a kinsman of mine set some paper on fire with a burning glass, a trick they had never before seen, they were like to have adored him for a god, and begged he would give them the characters or figures of his name, that they might oppose it against winds and storms, which he did, and they held it up in those seasons, and fancied it had a charm to conquer them, and kept it like a holy relic. They are very superstitious, and called him the great P.I., that is, prophet. They showed us their Indian P.I., a youth of about sixteen years old, as handsome as nature could make a man. They consecrate a beautiful youth from his infancy, and all arts are used to complete him in the finest manner, both in beauty and shape. He is bred to all the little arts and cunning they are capable of, to all the leisure de main tricks and sleight of hand, whereby he imposes upon the rabble, and is both a doctor in physic and divinity, and by these tricks makes the stick believe he sometimes eases their pains, by drawing from the afflicted part little serpents, or odd flies, or worms, or any strange thing. And though they have besides undoubted good remedies for almost all their diseases, they cure the patient more by fancy than by medicines, and make themselves feared, loved, and reverenced. This young P.I. had a very young wife, who, seeing my brother kiss her, came running and kissed me. After this they kissed one another, and made it a very great jest, it being so novel. And new admiration and laughing went round the multitude, that they never will forget that ceremony, never before used or known. Caesar had a mind to see and talk with their war-captains, and we were conducted to one of their houses, where we beheld several of the great captains, who had been at council. But so frightful a vision it was to see em, no fancy can create. No sad dreams can represent so dreadful a spectacle. For my part, I took them for hobgoblins or fiends rather than men. But however their shapes appeared, 
Their souls were very humane and noble, but some wanted their noses, some their lips, some both noses and lips, some their ears, and others cut through each cheek with long slashes, through which their teeth appeared. They had several other formidable wounds and scars, or rather dismemberings. They had comitias, or little aprons before them, and girdles of cotton, with their knives naked stuck in it, a bow at their back, and a quiver of arrows on their thighs, and most had feathers on their heads of divers colours. They cried Amora to Gaumi to us at our entrance, and were pleased we said as much to them. They seated us, and gave us drink of the best sort, and wondered as much as the others had done before, to see us. Caesar was marvelling as much at their faces, wondering how they should all be so wounded in war. He was impatient to know how they all came by those frightful marks of rage or malice, rather than wounds got in noble battle. They told us by our interpreter, that when any war was waging, two men, chosen out by some old captain whose fighting was past, and who could only teach the theory of war, were to stand in competition for the generalship, or great war-captain, and being brought before the old judges, now past war, they are asked, what they dare do, to show they are worthy to lead an army. When he who is first asked, making no reply, cuts off his nose, and throws it contemptibly on the ground, and the other does something to himself that he thinks surpasses him, and perhaps deprives himself of lips and an eye, so they slash on till one gives out, and many have died in this debate, and it's by a passive valour that they show and prove their activity, a sort of courage too brutal to be applauded by our black hero. Nevertheless he expressed his esteem of them. In this voyage Caesar begat so good an understanding between the Indians and the English, that there were no more fears or heart-burnings during our stay, but we had a perfect open and free trade with them. Many things remarkable and worthy reciting we met with in this short voyage, because Caesar made it his business to search out and provide for our entertainment, especially to please his dearly adored Emoinda, who was a sharer in all our adventures we being resolved to make her chains as easy as we could, and to compliment the prince in that manner that most obliged him. As we were coming up again, we met with some Indians of strange aspects, that is, of a larger size, and other sort of features than those of our country. Our Indian slaves that rowed us asked them some questions, but they could not understand us, but showed us a long cotton string, with several knots in it, and told us they had been coming from the mountains so many moons as there were knots, they were habited in skins of a strange beast, and brought along with them bags of gold-dust, which, as well as they could give us to understand, came streaming in little small channels down the high mountains, when the rains fell, and offered to be the convoy to anybody or persons that would go to the mountains. We carried these men up to Parham, where they were kept till the Lord Governor came and because all the country was made to be going on this golden adventure, the governor, by letters, commanded, for they sent some of the gold to him, that a guard should be set at the mouth of the river of Amazons, a river so called, almost as broad as the river of Thames, and prohibited all people from going up that river, it conducting to those mountains of gold. But we going off for England before the project was further prosecuted, and the governor being drowned in a hurricane, either the design died, or the Dutch have the advantage of it, and tis to be bemoaned what his majesty lost by losing that part of America. Though this digression is a little from my story, however, since it contains some proofs of the curiosity and daring of this great man, I was content to omit nothing of his character. 
It was thus for some time we diverted him. But now Imoinda began to show she was with child, and did nothing but sigh and weep for the captivity of her lord, herself, and the infant yet unborn, and believed, if it were so hard to gain the liberty of two, twould be much more difficult to get that for three. Her griefs were so many darts in the great heart of Caesar, and taking his opportunity one Sunday, when all the whites were overtaken in drink, as there were abundance of several trades, and slaves for four years, that inhabited among the negro houses, and Sunday being their day of debauch, otherwise they were a sort of spies upon Caesar, he went, pretending out of goodness to em, to feast among em, and sent all his music, and ordered a great treat for the whole gang about three hundred negroes, and about an hundred fifty were able to bear arms, such as they had, which was sufficient to do execution with spirits accordingly. For the English had none but rusty swords, that no strength could draw from a scabbard, except the people of particular quality, who took care to oil them and keep them in good order. The guns also, unless here and there one, or those newly carried from England, would do no good or harm, for tis the nature of that country to rust and eat up iron, or any metals but gold and silver. And they are very unexpert at the bow, which the negroes and the Indians are perfect masters of. Caesar, having singled out these men from the women and children, made an harangue to em, of the miseries and ignominies of slavery counting up all their toils and sufferings under such loads, burdens, and drudgeries as were fit for beasts than men, senseless brutes than human souls. He told him it was not for days, months, or years, but for eternity. There was no end to be of their misfortunes. They suffered not like men who might find a glory and fortitude in oppression, but like dogs that loved the whip and bell, and fawned the more they were beaten that they had lost the divine quality of men, and were become insensible asses, fit only to bear, nay worse, an ass, or dog, or horse, having done his duty could lie down and retreat, and rise to work again, and while he did his duty endured no stripes. But men, villainous, senseless men such as they, toiled on all the tedious week till Black Friday, and then, whether they worked or not, whether they were faulty or meriting, they promiscuously, the innocent with the guilty, suffered the infamous whip, the sordid stripes from their fellow-slaves, till their blood trickled from all parts of their body, blood whose every drop ought to be revenged with the life of some of these tyrants that impose it. "'And why,' said he, "'my dear friends and fellow-sufferers, should we be slaves to an unknown people? Have they vanquished us nobly in fight? Have they won us an honourable battle?' And are we by the chance of war become their slaves? This would not anger a noble heart, this would not animate a soldier's soul. No, but we are bought and sold like apes or monkeys, to be the sport of women, fools, and cowards, and the support of rogues and runagates, that have abandoned their own countries for rapine, murders, theft, and villainies. Do you not hear every day how they upbraid each other with infamy of life below the wildest savages? And shall we render obedience to such a degenerate race, who have no one human virtue left, to distinguish them from the vilest creatures? Will you, I say, suffer the lash from such hands?" They all replied with one accord, No, 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 Caesar has spoke like a great captain, like a great king. After this he would have proceeded, but was interrupted by a tall negro of some more quality than the rest. His name was Tuscan who, bowing at the feet of Caesar, cried, 
My lord, we have listened with joy and attention to what you have said, and were we only men, would follow so great a leader throughout the world. But, oh, consider, we are husbands and parents too, and have things more dear to us than life, our wives and children, unfit for travel in those unpassable woods, mountains, and bogs. We have not only difficult lands to overcome, but rivers to wade, and mountains to encounter, ravenous beasts of prey. To this Caesar replied that honour was the first principle in nature that was to be obeyed, but as no man would pretend to that without all the acts of virtue, compassion, charity, love, justice, and reason, he found it not inconsistent with that to take equal care of their wives and children as they would of themselves, and that he did not design, when he had led them to freedom and glorious liberty, that they should leave that better part of themselves to perish by the hand of the tyrant's whip. But if there were a woman among them so degenerate from love and virtue, to choose slavery before the pursuit of her husband, and with the hazard of her life to share with him in these fortunes, that such a one ought to be abandoned, and left as a prey to the common enemy." To which they all agreed, and bowed. After this he spoke of the impassable woods and rivers, and convinced them the more danger, the more glory. He told them that he had heard of one Hannibal, a great captain, had cut his way through mountains of solid rocks, and should a few shrubs oppose them, which they could fire before em? No, twas a trifling excuse to men resolved to die, or overcome. As for bogs, they are with a little labour filled and hardened, and the rivers could be no obstacle, since they swam by nature, at least by custom, from the first hour of their birth that when the children were weary, they must carry them by terms, and the woods and their own industry would afford them food. To this they all assented with joy. Tuscan then demanded what he would do. He said they would travel towards the sea, plant a new colony, and defend it by their valour, and when they could find a ship, either driven by stress of weather or guided by providence that way, they would seize it and make it a prize, till it had transported them to their own countries. At least they should be made free in his kingdom, and be esteemed as his fellow-sufferers, and men that had the courage and the bravery to attempt, at least, for liberty, and if they died in the attempt, it would be more brave than to live in perpetual slavery. They bowed and kissed his feet at this resolution, and with one accord vowed to follow him to death, and that night was appointed to begin their march. They made it known to their wives, and directed them to tie their hammocker about their shoulders and under their arm like a scarf, and to lead their children that could go, and carry those that could not. The wives, who pay an entire obedience to their husbands, obeyed, and stayed for them where they were appointed. The men stayed but to furnish themselves with what defensive arms they could get, and all met at the rendezvous, where Caesar made a new encouraging speech to them, and led them out. End of Part Eight.